Hey, everybody. If you're wondering why I'm wearing a suit, it's because I like messing with people. <laughs> About once a month, I let my wife pick out my outfit. And it's not... Yeah. Yeah. She did it last week. Just kidding. It's not true. Not true. No. Um, yeah. So if you're new with us, we're going through a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, which um, is the work of going through and seeing Jesus on every page. Jesus is the central figure of the whole of Scripture, that he is the fulfilled promise, and that the dynamic of how we come to Jesus and know and follow him is the dynamic all the way through Scripture, because he actually said that about the Scriptures one day. He said, you know, all that, all the prophets, Torah, all that, all those, it's all about me. And so what we're doing is we're trying to do that practically for two reasons. One, if you're not from very familiar with the Bible, this gives you an opportunity to get familiar with the Bible, which is great. The second is if you're already familiar with the Bible, but not very familiar with its, with its inner structure. There's a lot of people who've read the Bible a lot, but aren't really familiar with its inner structure, and it allows both groups to kind of come forward in their understanding of the, of the gospel and of Christ and of the scriptures, and that's kind of the hope. So the uh, passage in the Bible this week that we're going to be talking about is Genesis 25 to 35. Um, so just somewhere around 4,000 years ago, um, in the middle of the night, there was a guy standing by a stream in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Um, across the river was his brother, who the last time he'd seen him 22 years ago had sworn he was going to kill him. And who had brought 400 men about 250 miles to meet him. All mounted, all warriors. Wonder what he's planning to do. And he'd sent all his belongings and all of his family over the stream already. To the other side. And he couldn't go back because his father-in-law was behind him and he just assumed to kill him too. And so he's standing there in the middle of the night. It's not like in Madison, okay? It's when you get out, out there, those of you who grew up on farms or something, you know what it's like going out in the middle of the night. It is pitch dark, but some, for some shining stars, perhaps. And then something kind of odd happens. The passage says he's alone, and then all of a sudden he's not alone anymore. anymore. Some man shows up, some guy. And you're like, okay, hi, guy, right? And... It becomes pretty evident right away that this is not a normal guy. This is some kind of other guy. And it, it becomes pretty evident this is like an angel or something like that, right? And up until this point in the Bible, whenever like an angel-like person has shown up, there's a pretty normal way that goes down. It goes down like this. The angel shows up and he talks. And then the human says something back. And then sometimes the angel talks again. And that's pretty much the interaction. This time, the man shows up. And they grab a hold of each other And they like Greco-Roman grapple wrestle the rest of the night Okay So that's odd enough And then um, About daylight The mysterious man apparently has had about enough of this and it's evident that Jacob is never going to give up. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know about you, um, what your birth order is in your family, but I'm from a family with two brothers. My brother is two years older than me. So there was a point in our development where he could, we could wrestle, and he could always pin me. And I would never give up. 
did not matter. I would do some, I never, it did not matter. He totally, I, I would never give up. And there's this point where you're just kind of like, I'm, I, I'm going to stick this pencil in your arm, okay? Like there's some point where like the one who's won gets angry enough at the person who cannot accept that they've lost. They just won't stop, right? And so the man just reaches out and he just, just touches the inside of his hip socket right here on one of his still insides. And the passage just says, it wrenched him. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever had pain on that tendon, okay? Just ask the people over 60, right? Or the athletes, right? It's terrible. You can hardly bend in the middle, right? It's, it is an excruciating pain. And it, it says in the passage, it was a wound he, he had with him the rest of his life. And then... The, 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 the man is, is trying to get away, but Jacob still will not give up. Except the posture of the wrestling match now is Jacob laying like this, holding on to the guy's robe, right? Because he can't even get up. And the angel's like, will, will you please just let go of me? Right? It's daytime. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me because you see, for, for Jacob, this is life or death. Whoever this person is, this is the only person who can save his life. He's about to cross the river, and his brother, who last he knew wanted to cut his head off, is there with 400 fighting men. And he's got—I mean, the largest group he has is he's got four wives, right? Now, I'm sure ancient Mesopotamian women were tough as nails. (laughs) But—and so then it says this. This is how the passage ends. The man said, let go of me for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. It's a terrible threat, right? The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered, which means deceiver or usurper. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But then he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now, listen, you may or may not be into this story yet. I don't know you, some of you, you know, I don't know if you're into this story, if you find it interesting. Um, But according to the whole Bible, this is actually one of the three or four most important conversations that ever happened. Relatively short, you know, it's guy conversation, right? Um, but it's incredibly important in the history of, the, of how God relates to human beings. And it, that conversation, whether you know it or not, actually puts forward the categories that will define your identity in your whole life here and in your whole eternity. Um, the issue, though, is, is that I think to really understand what is going on in those verses, we actually have to go back a little bit in Jacob's life and kind of understand how on earth he got there, okay? So I, there's a number of things that happen between 25 and 35 in the book of Genesis, but I just want to hit three episodes in Jacob's life. The first is his conflict with his brother Esau. The second is his conflict with his father-in-law Laban. And the third is this one, his conflict with God or the angel, right? So first— um, the, fir- the first issue is that Jacob, the stealer or the usurper, starts out stealing from his brother, stealing his position and his privilege. Esau was the older brother, 
So Esau had the, the blessing of privilege, he's the older brother, and the blessing of position. He gets more, he, he's in charge of more, he'll receive more, he inherits more, he's just in a bigger, better place. And Jacob is interested in stealing that position and privilege. I'm sure you don't have any idea what that feels like. I'm sure nobody in this room has ever done that. But, you know, Jacob did, so we can just use him as a hypothetical example. Right? In Genesis 25, at the beginning of the story, it says, Isaac, that's their father, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren or infertile. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. Sorry. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were two twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they named him Esau, which means red, which is probably a better name than the Hebrew word for hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Jacob literally means the one who grasps the heel, but the figurative meaning of that is the one who usurps or deceives or steals, right? So from the very beginning, they come out of the womb with this relationship, right? Now, it's helpful to pay a little bit of attention to how the Bible describes these two brothers. So Esau, what we know about him is that he's red and hairy, which kind of reminds you of somebody— Right? So, you know, Elmo, Esau, they both start with E and have four letters. But, um, but when you read the biblical description of Esau, it's anything but Elmo. It says that he becomes a man of the country, a hunter. Right? He's this man of the open country. He goes around and kills stuff. And it says about Jacob that he was a man who liked to stay among the tents and was good at cooking. Okay? So, um, In my brother's sermon on this, he said, um, quote, The original Hebrew of this means, Jacob was a bookish mama's boy who liked to cook and stay inside and probably listen to a lot of Taylor Swift. And his his brother was more a monster truck firearms kind of guy. To To get the sense of it, if Esau wanted to kill Jacob, it would not be hard. And Jacob's mama apparently felt the same way because when she learned that Jacob wanted to, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, her advice to her boy was, run away. <laughs> right? The, the question, though, is, why did Esau want to kill Jacob? And it's because there were two episodes where Jacob just straight up schemed to steal his position and his, his, his blessing as the older brother. So the first one is, is that Esau's on this, like, long hunt out in the open country. He comes home after dark, and he's really hungry, and, you know, Jacob's, you know, doing his cooking show. And he goes, hey, give me some food. And Jacob's like, I'll, I'll definitely give you some food, but you're going to have to sell me your birthright for it, because it's, you know, it's my lentils. And so Esau goes, fine, right? And so Jacob gives him some lentils and bread and whatever, and um, it says that that's how that went down, Right? Which is not quite as bad as the other one, because in the other one, Isaac's to the point where he's going to die, and he's blind at this point, and he he calls in Esau, and he says, listen, I'm going to die soon. I want you to go out and, you know, kill an Ibex or something and cook it up, because you know I love wild game, and then bring it to me, I'll eat it, and then I'll give you my blessing, and then I'm I'm probably going to die. 
And so Esau says, okay. So he goes out, you know, looking for stuff. And Jacob's mother, Rebecca, goes, here's your chance. Esau's gone. He's off the premises. We'll kill a goat because they're the gamiest tasting thing in the herd. And we'll take the skin from the goat and we'll put it on you because apparently Esau was really fuzzy, right? I mean, <laughs> good heavens. And so, um, so that's what they did. They, so they cook up this goat and to taste like wild game, apparently. And then Jacob puts, like, the skin on him and goes in and he puts on, like, Esau's robes and stuff. So hopefully he'd smell a little bit like Esau. And he goes in and he, he presents it to Isaac and the thing works, essentially. And Isaac gives Jacob his blessing, right? And so Esau comes home and he finds out because he goes in, you know, he, and, and, and Isaac's like, what is this, round two? I mean, what, what's, whoa, and, and I already gave the other guy my blessing. I don't know who you are. And so Esau gets so angry. He's like, I am going to kill that guy. In fact, he says, isn't it right? This is why the interpretation of the name Jacob is not in question. Because he goes, isn't it right my brother's name is Jacob? Because he has deceived me these two times. Right? Or usurped or supplanted or whatever. Um, and so... Um, Jacob, his course of action here is run as fast as you can back to the kinfolk a few hundred miles away in Padaram is the place. And um, on his way there, he's got nothing. So think about this. He's got his brother's blessing and his birthright. And what does he have to show for it? Nothing. In fact, when he gets to this place that he would later call Bethel, he lays down there to sleep. You know what he uses for a pillow? A stone. Now that's poor, right? And so he sleeps on this stone, and while he's asleep, he has this vision of angels coming up and down out of heaven in that spot. Like, this is like, you know, the tube from heaven, right? And, and while he's singing this dream, he hears God speaking to him. And this is what it says in Genesis 28. Oops, I don't have a thing for that. You'll just have to listen. Genesis 28, 10 to 21. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, if you're new with us, he has promised this exact thing to Abraham a number of times and then Isaac also. This is now the third person God is making this promise to, right? I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land— I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then in verse 20, it says this, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Right? That's episode one. Episode two is is with his father-in-law. Now, so he runs from Esau— Leaves everything behind. He's got, you know, sandals and a staff and apparently a rock pillow. And he arrives in Padaram, and one of the first people he meets there is a woman named Rachel. Now, Rachel is the daughter of a guy named Laban, okay? And the Bible says that he likes her immediately, and they kind of fall in love and everything. And, you know, you can understand Jacob's kind of on the rebound, and the Bible says that Rachel was, well, this is the translation, super hot. So— um, he's, you know, glad he's found people. He's found his family. He knows that he's going to be taken care of. He's found this woman. He's a little lonely. He's just traveled a few hundred miles through the desert. You can imagine this sparks romantic feelings. And so that's what happens, right? 
And so he, he goes to Laban and they say, he says, listen, I love Rachel and I want to marry her. And, and Laban says, that'll be fine. But here's the problem. You normally pay dowries when you marry a woman and you don't have anything. So you work for me for seven years and then you can marry Rachel. And so he says, not a problem, because the Bible says because he loved her so much that seven years was like, was just like a blink of an eye. And so it's time for the wedding night, and, and, they, and he gets married, and, and, and the, the Bible doesn't actually say how this happens, okay? I suspect it happens through profound drunkenness, frankly. Um, but there could be veils involved, and who actually knows? And, um, but when Jacob, it says when he wakes up in the morning— Leah is in the bed, Rachel's older sister, rather than Rachel. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that happens. And somebody from the last service says, I wonder what Rachel was doing during that. So I was like, good question. Um, but he wakes up and there's Leah. And like, so he's already married and consummated with Leah. And he's like, so he goes to Leah and he's like, what? <laughs> what just happened? He's like, well, you know, in our country, we always marry off the oldest daughter first. So I just assume that's what you wanted to do, you know? He's like, um, that's not what I wanted to do. He said, well, finish the week of celebration with Leah, and then you can marry Rachel, and then after that, you can work another seven years for me to get Rachel, because I gave you Leah, and now you've got to pay that around that one, too. Okay, so that's what he does, right? So he marries Rachel, and for those 14 years, he is basically Laban's shepherd. He takes care of all his herds. Now, when Jacob got there, Laban is apparently not very wealthy, right? Because the Bible says about Leah and Rachel that Leah had weak eyes— but Rachel was lovely in body and form, which either means Leah had a nice face and was pleasant to be around, and Rachel was super hot, or Leah was cross-eyed and not very attractive at all. In fact, her name means cow, <laughs> but Rachel was super hot. Either way, it's the same predicate, right? Um, now, if you're wealthy— you don't send your super hot daughter out to be a shepherd in the all-boys countryside. Right? That's not what you do. But Rachel, when, when, when Jacob meets her, she's a shepherd. Right? Not a wealthy family. But under Jacob's work, because God was blessing him, Laban's herds pick up. And by the end of the 14 years, Jacob's like, dude, it's time for me to go. But Laban has gone to a diviner who's told him that Jacob is under the divine God's blessing. So Laban doesn't want to let him go. So they come up with this arrangement. Jacob's like, well, I want to earn something for my household. He's like, okay. So, so Jacob's like, okay, how about this? I will get all the spotted and striped and not solid color animals. And all the solid color animals, which is the most by far, will be yours. So I'll take all the recessive ones, and you can have all the normal colored ones. And we'll do that for a while. And then when it's time for me to go, we'll know what belongs to me, and we'll know what belongs to you. Right? And so that same day, Laban goes, totally fine. And then he goes to his herd, and he takes all the speckled spotted striped out, gives them to his sons, and sends them three days away. And so Jacob shows up to his herd, and there is not a one. <laughs> and so these are recessive animals. It's hard to get them. Right? And there's not a one in this. And so Laban's already pulled another, pulled another gig. And so Jacob, to get the upper hand here, engages in what, uh, what one commentator or preacher on this called um, Mesopotamian goat sorcery. Okay, so, okay, I'm not joking with you. This is really what the text says. So he goes and he gets sticks and he peels the bark off of them of a kind of tree that has really white kind of underflesh. 
so that the sticks are striped, right? There's bark and then there's not bark, bark and not bark, and so it's striped. And he puts it in front of where they mate. Because everybody knows that when a girl goat is being mated with, if it's looking at something striped, it'll have striped offspring. (laughs) Or spotted, you know? Everybody knows that. And the funny thing about it in the passage is it says, and so there were lots of striped and spotted offspring. And you're like, you know? So I was going to make a joke about having a picture of Einstein in your bedroom, but let's just not go there. Um, so this is kind of an odd thing. And, and what we know from the text is that over the next 10 years, Laban keeps switching the arrangement. He's like, well, you could have the spotted ones, and I'll keep the striped ones. And, we'll the and so finally it gets to the point where it's been 20 years, okay? Seven more years he's done this. And he's like, okay, it's time to go. And God finally comes and says, okay, it's time for you to leave. Except the, the, Jacob doesn't say, all right, well, it's time for me to go. So what I'll do is I'll get together with Laban. He'll kiss everybody goodbye. We'll talk about at what age it'd be proper to take the kids to Disney World, and then we'll go. And you'll come up with a visiting thing or whatever. No, Jacob just up and leaves, right? And three days later, Laban, somebody tells Laban, oh, by the way, your, your daughters, your grandchildren, your shepherd guy, he— he left. He's <laughs> gone. And so Laban's like, oh no, he didn't. And he gets all his like, his kin and stuff together. And they all get on horses and, with and swords and guns and stuff and ride after him, right? And so, you know, Jacob's trying to get away. He's got little lambs you got to carry and he's got little kids and wives arguing about stuff. And so, you know, seven days later, Laban catches up with him in the middle of the desert. There's nowhere to go, okay? And Jacob's like, oh, they're going to kill me. He's going to kill me and take his daughters back. Well, the night before Laban engages with Jacob, he has a dream. And God shows up and goes, listen, don't touch him. Right? And Laban wakes up. He's like, I think I got the, I think I got the point. So he goes and sees Jacob and he's like, okay, you're a jerk for leaving like that. And so let's make an arrangement. You won't marry any more women, so my daughters will be fine. And we'll put a little rock here. And, and here's what we'll decide. You don't ever come back across this rock, and I will never go across it. And you and I will be like that. Right? And off he goes. And Jacob wins, right? He's got four wives, a lot of kids, pretty wealthy. Right? And then he gets to the river, and Esau's coming, and the angel shows up, and he fights the angel, right? And when he gets done— he says that he's going to give him the name Israel, right? Not Jacob anymore, because— And, and here's the, 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 the way the text says it. Because you've struggled with God and with man and have overcome, right? Now, there's a really important question that comes up with the name Israel. And that's because—whoops. And that's because Israel could mean two different things. The Hebrew literally says— He fights God. Okay? So so it all depends on whether or not there's a comma. Right? It could mean he fights God. Implied, and he wins. He's an awesome fighter. Right? Jacob's Israel. Right? He, you know, he should fight UFST or whatever. Right? Um, The other possibility is he fights, comma, who fights? God fights. That is, Israel means God fights. Now, depending on how you take that, literally changes your total identity as a human being. 
totally changes who you are, what you are, what your life means, who God is, how God relates to you. Everything about your life turns on what that name means. Now, and you can't tell from just the word. It could mean either. So how do you figure that out if you're interpreting the Bible? Well, you look at the context. You look at the whole story. What does the whole story say? Well, let's go back briefly to the three episodes and ask ourselves the question, is the point of this episode that Jacob's an awesome fighter? Is Jacob the Michael Weston of the Bible? Right? He's always three steps ahead in terms of his tactics, and he's got lots of goats, so he's probably really into yogurt. Right? Is, is Jacob a great tactician and a great overcomer, or in the middle of all this stuff, is God fighting for Jacob? Right? So, go back to supplanting Esau, right? So he beats Esau, right? But how? Well, the one, it actually literally says the reason he won with Esau the first time with the bowl of lentils isn't because he was so crafty. It's because Esau didn't care. He didn't care about the promise. He cared more about a bowl of soup than about his birthright. In fact, his whole nation got named after that moment. Edom means red. And, it, and most of the traditions point that back to his sale of his birthright for the red lentils, not his nickname as a red hairy fellow. It wasn't Jacob. And then even when Jacob beats him for the blessing, whose idea was that? Right? It was his mom's idea. It wasn't even his idea. And really, what did that lead to? It led to his poverty, but it led to him meeting God for the first time. Right? Now, the second one, cheating Laban, it kind of goes back to the Mesopotamian goat sorcery because when it comes to, the, comes to the girls, Laban just straight won, okay? Like, one Laban, zero Jacob when it comes to women, right? He totally won the wives thing. So the question is, who won the goats thing? Well, on one level, you could just say, well, this is written by kind of primitive ancient people, and they believe in that kind of sorcery clap-chap stuff, and they probably really thought that if you put striped sticks in front of things, they'd come out striped, and that's just the way it is. Okay, maybe. That's possible. It's also possible that the text itself interprets that a a couple chapters later, like in chapter 31, where it says, this is Jacob talking to his wives about it being time to leave. He says, In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and I saw the male goats mating with the flock that were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Meaning, the right pairs were naturally mating with each other outside of his control, such that they would produce lots of speckled and spotted and striped animals, right? The angel of God said in the dream, Jacob, I said, here I am, I'm listening, right? And he said, Look up and see that all of the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, and spotted. Right? Why is that? That's weird. Now, God is saying that because he's taking credit for that happening. He's saying, you aren't actually making this happen. I'm making this happen. Now, why would God do that? For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. 
Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So if the command to go back to your native land is in this, that means the, the, the mating season this came in was the last one, right? So for 20 to 22 years, somewhere in there, this has been going on, right? For at least seven years, he's specifically been pulling off this Mesopotamian goat sorcery. At the very end of it, God shows up in a dream and he's like, you know, Jacob, you're very cute in, in, in what you're doing with the whole sticks and all that. But, but look, and he sees in his dream everything happening like it's supposed to so that he would be better off. And God says, I did this, and I didn't do this because you were clever. I did this because you were being oppressed and cheated. And I did it even though you were an oppressor and a cheater. And he said, the reason I did it is because back in Bethel, 20 years ago, you made an oath to me and I made a promise to you and you have not fulfilled it, right? I mean, if you look at the whole text, there is not one shred of evidence that Jacob ever thought about the oath he made to God 20 years before. Never thought about it, right? Now, he probably did. I mean, he's a shepherd. I hear they have a lot of downtime, right? But there's nothing in the text about his behavior, his thinking, his praying, his talking. His, nothing he does points to that. Yet, Yet 22 years later, after all the shenanigans, all the usurping, all the lying, all the cheating, everybody suffered for it. Four women's, 12 sons, daughters, all pawns between two men being idiots. God shows up, he says, listen, Jacob, the reason you're wealthy, there's only one reason you're wealthy. I made the flocks function that way because I kept my oath, because I made a promise. Right? And then when Laban finally caught up with him, what was Jacob going to do? He was toast. And then God shows up and says, Laban, don't do anything. And don't say, God actually says to him, don't even say anything to him, good or bad. Right? And then he fights God. Right? Or he fights the angel. The, 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 the man in this passage is called a man— the angel and God. A lot of theologians call this um, a theophany, which is essentially the belief that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. That the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, or these, these strange human figures that are also divine that kind of show up out of nowhere, are actually prequels to Jesus. And that that's who this man is. Now, the, the issue here is, why does the man show up in the first place, right? Like, you've got— you, you, you know, before the wrestling match starts, why does the man show up? Well, if you back up just a few verses, Jacob prayed for help. Jacob does all his shenanigans, splits his people into two groups, sends things to make Esau feel better, gives him gifts and stuff, and then puts people over here. He does all his scheming, and then he realizes it's totally futile, and then he prays. And he says, God, the God who told me to go home, I'm terrified. Esau has come to kill me, and I can't stop it. And he's going to kill my children. He's going to kill my wives. He's going to destroy everything. And there's nothing I can do to stop this. Help me. Right? And then a man shows up. The other thing is, like, how did this fight actually go? Is the point of the story that Jacob is so tough— that he made it till morning? Or is the point of the story that he is so stubborn, he has no idea when he's beaten? 
right? I mean, it's like, it's like wrestling your five-year-old. He will never give up. But he was beaten before the fight even started. Right? It's just a weight thing, right? One touch and the fight is over. That was true the first minute of the fight. As true as it was the last minute of the fight. And when Jacob really wants to kind of take a step forward and get more than just the basic blessing of salvation that he, that the man came to give him, he gets basically rebuked for it. Jacob gets a new name, and then he says, well, what's your name? And what, is the, what does the man say? Why do you ask? The point? There's no possible noble reason you could be asking that question. You just want to take some control in the situation, and you don't have any. And then what does he do right after that? The very next line is, and then the man did what? He blessed him. You see, part of the issue of this whole section and the whole section that follows after it is that Jacob becomes Israel not because he overcame everything. He became Israel because God had been fighting for him all along. That's all that's ever happened with God and humans. God has always been the provider. Remember that from the story of Abraham? God provided. Well, and here's it's just a different metaphor. It's just a different picture. Here, God is not the provider. He's the warrior. He says, all your life, Jacob, you've been fighting. All your life, you've been fighting, you've been fighting, you've been fighting, you've been fighting, you've been fighting. And none of it has amounted to a hill of beans. You would have died three or four times. All your scheming amounts to nothing. Really. The only reason you're still alive, you're even here, he says, is because I've been fighting for you. I made you a promise. You said that if I kept you alive, I would be your God. You said that 22 years ago. Right? And think about the whole rest of the Old Testament. If you, for those of you who've read the Bible, all the way through this history of the people of Israel, what's the theme? People who understood God was their warrior were blessed and were great. People who did it themselves and usurped the power to themselves didn't. Think of just the— Right, you go into the king's period, Saul and David. Right? What does Saul do? Whatever he wants. Whatever he thinks will get him the win. And what happens? He comes apart. He ends up with lots of things impaling him. What's the deal with David? David is the one who in his teens goes out and faces some nine-foot-tall guy who's, the, who's been a warrior since he was a little kid. And he goes, and he says to the giant who says, look, I'm going to feed you the birds. He goes, look, you don't know who you're fighting. You don't even know who the warrior here is. David says, basically he says, I'm completely inconsequential. You defied the living God. Anybody could fight you. And you'd lose. Right? What was, why was David the greatest warrior in the history of Israel? It wasn't because he was the greatest warrior in the history of Israel. David was the greatest warrior in the history of Israel because he understood God was the warrior of Israel. So much so that in certain events, God wouldn't even let the Israelites fight to win battles. So much did he want to get this across, right? Remember the thing um, with Jehoshaphat? He's like, listen, put all the trumpet guys out front. Right? Or you get to Jericho. Just walk. Just walk around it. Just walk around a bunch of times. Just get, you know, make sure you have your pedometer and a nice bottle of water because that's all you're going to be doing, right? And the walls are just going to come down. And you're just going to go in and you're going to have already won. 
Other battles, God, like Gideon, right? How does that work? He's got, he sends everybody home, right? But like 300 people, he gives them all a torch in a bowl, right? And they go up against like 350,000 people. <clears throat> and oh no, they get, they get a bowl, a torch, and a trumpet, right? So they light the torch and they blow the horn, right? When they're fighting against Midian. And what do the Midianites do? They kill each other and run. And they're like, this is great. The whole history of Israel, the whole history of God's people, from day one to the everlasting days, God has always ever been the warrior. And he believes that that would not make us warlike people. If you read the Bible carefully, because some of you are hearing this with ears, you're like, I don't like this warrior talk. I mean, they're going to be all going to carry guns and stuff. That's, that's not the point. The point here is, when God is a warrior, you can be a people of peace. That's the point. Think of Romans 12. Why can we forgive and not take vengeance? He says, why? Because you just need to trust that to God. God takes his own vengeance, and he will take it on your behalf if that's necessary. You show grace and kindness and love and draw them to Christ. And if in the end they reject it and they spit on grace, God takes care of vengeance. If you believe in God, you can forgive without letting go of justice. You could be a people of peace. You cannot— you cannot usurp. You cannot connive. You cannot manipulate. You can let—I mean, think about it. Think about human life. What is human life constantly marked with? Fear that produces manipulation. Our whole lives are just sullied by this and controlled by this. We want to make enough money. We want to get that promotion. We want to position ourselves here. We want to do that. We're going to flatter this person. We're going <laughs> to— Human life is just infected to the very bottom with Jacobness. No offense if your name's Jacob. And it's not until—it's not until the name change, which comes along with the realization change, that we receive blessing, whatever success there will be, by faith. We trust in another to be a warrior on our behalf. That's what believing in God means. It means not playing God, but trusting God. And what that does is it can take away fear so that we can be honest people. We can be sincere people. Where does phoniness come from but fear and manipulation? We can be honest. We can, we can say what we mean. We can keep our word. We can sacrifice for the good of others. We can—all those things we believe from a manipulation perspective put us at a disadvantage. And who wants to be at a disadvantage? Only the person who has the greatest warrior already fighting on their behalf. We can afford any advantage. Because with God, we have every advantage. Being disadvantaged doesn't bother us. The fear of that disadvantage is gone. If we trust the one who is Israel, he fights. And what that ends up looking like for us today is that there is one who became true Israel on our behalf. There is one who fought the most consequential battles and then turned us loose through his power to fight the inconsequential ones. He came and fought the battle of sin, death, and hell. 
Jesus came and accepted crucifixion. He was the great passive warrior. And he creates a nation of passive warriors, doesn't he? People who aren't passive, they're not weak. It's not that they don't have courage. It's not that the men aren't manly. It's that we're not bloodthirsty. We can be strong without being oppressors. Because he has come as the great peaceful warrior. Last night, one of the things I do when I, when I preach on Old Testament passages like this a lot, oftentimes, is I'll go and I'll read the rabbinic literature. Because the Jewish people have been, been reflecting on these scriptures for a few thousand years, right? And so, and a lot of times when I read it, I find stuff that's very helpful. Like, I mean, just really neat thoughts that I, that are, that, you know, you add Christ and they, they work, right? Um, but last night I was reading, um, reading the rabbis on this, and it was, it was terrible. Um, because when it came right down to it, um, they believe that Jacob was a good man. Which I think is literally the opposite point of the whole story. You see, if you come in committed to the idea that Israel was a good man, I don't think you have a prayer of understanding the story of Jacob and Israel. It says in the rabbinic literature, Jacob, because his image is engraved upon God's throne of glory, symbolizes the highest moral potential of man. We should all look up to him. He was wonderful. My brother wrote about, about Jacob when he preached on this. He says, the reason Jacob is my favorite patriarch is because he's easily the most morally disappointing patriarch. The, the fact is, Jacob is one of the most morally disappointing characters in the whole Bible. In fact, he, he isn't even anything you could really call a person of faith at all until almost the very end. Where he says this. This is how the, the story begins to end for Jacob. So he's come back into the land. His his sons have now killed a whole city of people because two guys and actually raped one of their sisters. Okay, this is what's still going on with his family. And after that happened, God shows up to Jacob when he's living in a place called Shechem. And God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of your foreign gods the ones you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. See, they're going to do a new start. This is the first time ever. He goes to his whole family and says, we need a totally new start. We've had this totally wrong all along, and we're going to change it right now. Then he says in verse 3, Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and the rings they had in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. He left it all behind. And then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon all the towns along the way so that no one pursued them. And Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, and the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. You see, um, 
the thing that was so disappointing to me when I read the rabbinic literature on this was that the identity they ascribed to the angel that Jacob wrestles is Satan. The argument is, this is the tradition, that Esau's guardian angel was Satan because Esau's a bad guy, right? Edom is always at war with Jacob, right? With Israel. The, the two are against each other. And therefore, Satan is Esau's guardian angel. Satan knows that Esau's had a change of heart and, and his, God has changed his heart and is going to forgive Jacob when he comes across the river. That's what happens. So Satan goes and fights him himself. And so when Jacob succeeds in defeating the angel, that is Satan, by God's power, it demonstrates that he is a great man. He has struggled with men and with demons, and he's overcome. He's Israel. Okay, that's, I think, a very unlikely interpretation. I think a much more likely interpretation is that the pre-incarnate Christ came to wrestle Jacob into the realization of who he really was and who God really was. To Jacob's shame, he had fought God. The first meaning of Jacob is true. He wrestles with God. He fights God. That is to his eternal shame. The realization is the second meaning of the word. God fights. That when he realized it's to his eternal shame that he's fought the one who cares for him, who loves him and has provided for him, and he realizes that it's God who fights for him, he can actually believe. And he finally goes back and he says, right? He says, this is the God who is with me. He answered me in the day of my distress. What was that? It was the day he wrestled with him and hurt his hip for the rest of his life. But the thing Jacob remembers from that is, he answered me in the day of my distress. The day I prayed to him, he delivered me. And he has been with me wherever I've gone. Funny, because he never mentioned him. But now he realizes it. And you see, this guy who stood on a riverbank 3,000 years ago in the middle of the night, that's how he defines who you are and who I am forever. The greater man of God, the theophany come to earth, Jesus, the one who was crucified and risen. He, listen, if he's got to wrestle you down, I don't know what it's going to take. But ultimately, every human destiny is decided by whether or not they realize that they either keep the name Jacob or they take the name Israel. And that choice is just before all of us in the person of Jesus. He's come to make the, make the promises. It says, it says in the New Testament, to make the promises more sure. He's worked out more clearly how this works. And we have the choice to put our trust in him. And when we do, it's, listen, it's not just that we won't get our hip broken right? When you really believe God will fight all of your battles for you, not to get you anything you want, but that there is one who is with you wherever you go, think about what that would really do to your life. Emotionally, morally, personally, spiritually. Think of the things that if you really believe that, you could let go forever. And think of the strength that that would create for your character to live for things that were true and beautiful and good. It would completely change you. You would release so many selfish things and so many felt needs to destroy and manipulate the people around you. They'd be gone. It'd be lifted off of you. And there would be a capacity that you, I don't think you can get any other way. Because I think every human deep down has to believe somebody's fighting for them. I don't think you can give that up. 
I don't think that's really possible. And I actually, I don't even think it's, I don't even think it's advisable. But when you believe there is one perfectly fighting for you, you don't have to fight for yourself other than to the extent that it's your duty to do what's right and true, which is what the Bible calls faithfulness. That is, keep having faith on and on and on. And as we read through the New Testament, it's really clear that whatever you believe about the historic people of the Jews, of historic Israel, whatever you believe about God's continued relationship and dynamic with them, what we know is is that through Christ, we are meant to be Israel. We are meant to be the ones who believe that we fought God and now God fights for us and so we can serve and love him. Let's pray. Father, um, we lift up this passage to you and we pray that you would drill it into our hearts. We recognize that it took Jacob something like 60 years to learn this. And for our own good and for the good of those around us, we'd, we'd like to learn it faster than that. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach it to us today. And that we would see Christ in the man who wrestled Jacob to his own good. And that we would see the purposes of Christ when Jacob crossed the river and hugged Esau and Esau forgave him and Jacob said, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God because you have accepted and forgiven me. That that's the one moment where Esau got to be Jesus. I pray that right now you'd help us to accept you as our warrior as the one who fights for our true good and the good of all people, and therefore to let go of the Jacob in us so that we can bear the name Israel with beauty and truthfulness and courage and that there would be a huge release in our lives of all the things of manipulation and selfishness and supplanting that dominate us and break us to pieces inside we pray that you'd give them the free, us the freedom and joy that come with that. In Christ's name, amen.